Welcome to the Transformative Ideas podcast. We have a new name, but still try to bring you the same insightful conversations with leading researchers from all over the world. Ideas really have the power to transform us and our guests frequently had their lives transformed by these ideas and their passion for them. In these conversations, we try to capture some of that passion and make it accessible to our listeners. I'm your host, Manuel Brenner. And now, without any further ado, let's jump right in. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm speaking with Priya Donti. You are an incoming assistant professor at MIT. And previously, you did your PhD at Carnegie Mellon University. Currently, you are serving as executive director of Climate Change AI, which you also co-founded, which is a global nonprofit initiative to catalyze impactful work at the intersection of climate change and machine learning. For your work, you were also recently awarded the 35 Innovators Under 35 Award by MIT Technology Review. Uh, your research focuses on a more specific applications of machine learning to forecasting and optimization in, in the context of power grids. And you think about, for example, methods to integrate physics and other constraints into deep learning. We will have a lot of like more specific machine learning questions to talk about, but I also want to go deeper into your work with climate change AI, what, what your organization is doing and what drives you to, to work in this sector and what the most important questions are here. So to start things off, I just want to ask very generally what brought you and your career at the intersection of machine learning and climate science and whether like defining moments for either one of them or both of them that made you realize you wanted to focus on, on these specific areas. Yeah, so I knew I've known that I wanted to work on climate change since the first week of high school. Actually, my uh, high school biology teacher repurposed the first few weeks of that class to be a sustainability curriculum. And we learned about different topics like water, air pollution and climate change. And when we talked about climate change, I think what really struck me is the extent to which it was really an issue of equity in the sense that the world's most disadvantaged populations would be most affected by the impacts of climate change. And this is something that really struck me as a really important issue to work on. So I knew that I wanted to work on climate change, but I wasn't sure exactly how. I went to undergrad thinking that maybe I would become a material scientist and help discover the next generation of solar panels. Um, but when I started my computer science classes as part of my undergrad, I fell in love with them. And at the time, this posed a bit of a conundrum because I didn't really know at that time how computer science and climate change really you know, could fit. And so I decided to take a little bit of a leap of faith, take do the computer science major and pursue Uh, climate and environment through a minor and my extracurriculars. And then towards the end of undergrad, I was luckily stumbled on this paper called Putting the Smarts in the Smart Grid by some researchers at the University of Southampton. And this paper described how AI and machine learning would be key components of a power grid that was powered by low carbon energy and by renewables. And so uh, this really struck me as, as something that very interesting, something that I wanted to work on. And so I spent a year on a Watson fellowship traveling around the world and interviewing people about power grids before starting my PhD on this topic at Carnegie Mellon. The climate topic has blown up in recent years. I think now it's it's on everyone's attention, but you basically already were interested in the topic before. And now I think it was probably the right time to, to really focus on that. So maybe we can just jump into climate change and machine learning, how they interact. Uh, with climate change AI, you 
um, released or published this position paper on tackling climate change with machine learning. Maybe we can start there, how how that came about and what the kind of core motivation was. And there's also a pretty illustrious group of, of co-authors with Andrew Eng, Demis Hassabis, and Joshua Bengio. Some of the biggest names in machine learning also contributed to that and supported that initiative. So yeah, maybe you can tell us a bit about how that happened. Yeah, so uh, I had uh, this. This happened a couple of years into my PhD. So I'd been working at this intersection of machine learning and power grids, but hadn't really found a very large core community of people who are working on topics similar to this. There were some other communities that I was really lucky to benefit from, like the Computational Sustainability Network and its founder, Carla Gomes, for example, are huge inspirations. But there was definitely room for, for a bigger community. In parallel um, to, to me doing my PhD, um, one of my climate change AI co-founders, David Rolnick, was doing a postdoc at University of Pennsylvania coming from a mathematics and deep learning background and was really feeling this urgency of, you know, the uh, this urgency to address climate change and wondering if there were ways that he could use his background to actually do this. So he started some conversations both at Penn and at Mila to try to convene researchers who might similarly be interested and start an exploration into how AI and machine learning could potentially uh, you know, address this challenge. And then in parallel to this, my colleague Lynn Cock um, at, at Carnegie Mellon was working on a, a PhD in climate policy and was seeing large amounts of satellite imagery become available that could potentially provide important input data to these policy analyses. So these th three different threads were three and many more different threads were were sort of going on in parallel. And then um, how it all culminated is that David organized an event at NeurIPS 2018, bringing together people in this area. And I got invited to speak. We got connected there. And then David basically led the, the writing of this tackling climate change with machine learning paper, bringing together myself. Lynn and many others from from across to 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 work on this together, and so um, it was a combination of yeah uh, junior authors on the paper who who contributed chapters, and also senior authors, including as you said some of these um, you know illustrious names in machine learning, but also including um, climate change experts, lead authors on the UN climate change reports, as well as. Uh, the founders of some very important communities that predated us at the intersection of um, computer science and climate science and in computational sustainability. So it was a really kind of interdisciplinary team that came together to, to write that paper. Can you already see some impact from that paper on kind of this new field emerging and a lot of developments being ushered in or like started from that paper or from that specific collaboration? Absolutely. So anecdotally, we've heard people tell us that, hey, I, I read the paper and it caused me to change my whole area of research or I switched jobs or I started startups based on this work. Um, and there have also been various initiatives that have been informed by um, or, or spun up because of the paper. So for example, several um, national and international grants programs that either were started because of or heavily inspired by the paper. Um, the National AI Strategy of the UK mentions climate change as a core area of focus and, and sort of attributes uh, our paper to kind of being having put that area of focus in there. 
Um, and there have also been various competitions and challenges that have spun out in addition to the broader climate change AI community and initiatives that have sprung out since then. So it's been really exciting to see the progression of the area over the last few years. Yeah, we've also hosted a machine learning for real world problem seminar this semester in, at Heidelberg University, and we also discussed your paper. And what I think was really useful, we can definitely also talk about some of the details here, but to to get some ideas for what is actually possible, because I think we have some intuitions for what you can do with AI, but say prediction of, of power supply and demand is not like the most obvious first thing you would think of as, <laughs> as being like a sensible way of tackling climate change with AI. Maybe we can just go through some of the interesting topics you discussed in there and some of the most promising applications of for AI. Absolutely. So in the paper, it's uh, we went through different sectors or areas in which machine learning can address climate change. So we went through first areas related to climate change mitigation, so reducing greenhouse gas emissions in sectors like electricity, transport, or heavy industry. We also went through climate change adaptation, so adapting to the effects of climate change that we will face, and talked both about how uh, tools from climate science can contribute to that, and also how machine learning can strengthen our human, social, health, and infrastructure systems. Um, and then we also talked about cross-cutting tools or areas that are necessary to facilitate the deployment of mitigation and adaptation actions. So that's things like policy, finance, education, and so forth. And across this exploration, you know, there are you know, dozens and dozens of applications emerged, but there were several cross-cutting themes that seemed to recur. One of those is a lot of uh, places where machine learning could distill large amounts of raw data into actionable insights. So things like turning satellite imagery into information about where the greenhouse gas emissions are or re where deforestation is occurring or turning large amounts of policy and text documents or patent documents into insights about how policy or innovation should proceed. We also saw a lot of forecasting related applications. So you mentioned forecasting uh, electricity supply and demand, but also things like forecasting extreme events or transportation demand uh, in, in the future. Lots of places where we saw the capability for machine learning to optimize an operational system in order to make it more efficient. So things like optimizing our freight transportation systems or supply chains, uh, optimizing our heating and cooling systems in order to significantly reduce their emissions. And we also saw a lot of places where machine learning could contribute to fundamental science and engineering advances and the discovery of new technologies. For example, the creation of next generation batteries or carbon dioxide sorbents or electrofuels, where the idea is that machine learning can search through the space of past experiments in order to, to recommend which experiments to try next in order to accelerate the discovery process. Yeah, that's an idea that's, I think, most prominent in the medical context right now that you have some, like a very high, high dimensional search space when you look for new molecules for like medical applications. And it's extremely expensive to develop new drugs because that search space is so large. And if PhD students have to search it by hand, then it just gets into the billions of dollars quickly. So it's it's interesting from this like kind of technological perspective how you can translate technical questions into machine learning optimization problems and then basically cut down on those tree searches. Um, I think you mentioned in one of your talks that there's also a certain risk associated with that because I mean, with respect to climate change, many people look for this kind of miracle solution of that could make everything better. 
and it kind of yeah sometimes keeps us away from actually pragmatically thinking about adaptation and it's not maybe this interesting perspective of climate change is already happening and we won't stop climate change basically but we have to adapt anyway so then we can also use technology to adapt and not need to rely on that miracle solution I mean, yeah, I think there are a couple of different angles here to think about. So one of them is that, you know, climate change mitigation is obviously extremely important. The the fewer greenhouse gas emissions we continue to emit, the less uh, the effects of climate change will be. In addition, definitely, we also need to make sure that we're taking very strong and robust uh, action to adapt to the effects of climate change, in particular because, as I mentioned, these effects are unevenly distributed. And so it's important to make sure that especially those communities who are going to be most impacted are given the resources, capacity, finance to to adapt. Um, But then within this whole space, it's also important to note that machine learning is one part of any approach to addressing this. um, It's first of all, not applicable in all situations. And where it is applicable, it's only one piece of the broader puzzle in terms of interfacing with engineering, the social sciences, policy approaches from various other places as well. We recorded a couple of episodes on this podcast with the Clean Air Task Force. And one of the questions there was, how, how can you actually monitor methane pollutions on a global level? And then there's this new generation of satellite imagery, for example, that can take images, but it's extremely difficult to like evaluate and look at this data. It's probably also like a good example of, of an application of machine learning in that context. Do you have a couple of other examples of, of like more concrete applications? Yeah, I mean, one theme I didn't cover is um, places where we have really time-intensive models. So these are places like when we're optimizing a power grid or when we're trying to make a prediction of future climate or when we're trying to model a city. Uh And we want to understand how, you know, the system will actually evolve, but running a physical model can be really time intensive. So there have been a number of applications of machine learning in these contexts to actually uh, slim down and speed up these these different uh, optimization models in order to um, in order to enable them to run faster, in order for them to be run at better spatial resolution, in order to be able to incorporate more assumptions or scenarios that you might want to test out. Um, So that's also been actually like a really interesting area in addition to the sort of forecasting or information distillation or process optimization that I talked about earlier. It also connects to the kind of darker side of AI in that it's very compute intense and can actually, the energy cost associated with AI models is also non-negligible. And you mentioned like 1% or something in one of your talks of the total energy demand or electricity demand is from these big data infrastructures and data centers. And supercomputers that are used to simulate, for example, the climate are also extremely compute intense. So making all of that more efficient with more efficient algorithms could also have a big impact. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, the I think the figure is something like Data centers um, as a whole make up about one to two percent of global emissions, and within that, AI is some fraction, but it's unclear kind of what fraction specifically it is. Um, 
It's also the case that the emissions from data centers have roughly stayed the same over the last decade. But this is actually because even though there's been a sort of exponential increase in the amount of compute, hardware has also gotten exponentially more efficient. And it's not something that we can necessarily take for granted that hardware efficiencies will continue to stay in pace with computational demand. So definitely this this aspect of um, thinking about the compute associated with AI and machine learning models is important. And then also, yeah, exactly. There are some examples where AI and machine learning can actually help reduce compute in things like like supercomputing for climate. And so using it in those ways is also um, a really interesting place. Um, that said, I would say that one conversation that often comes up is people say, is AI good or bad for the climate? So on the one hand, they say, well, good, it can be used for applications that help combat climate change. And bad, it can be, it produces its own emissions. But I would argue that this is actually a false way to frame the question in the sense that AI has good applications. It also has its own carbon footprint, but it also has bad applications. It has applications where it's used to accelerate oil and gas exploration. It's a pretty key component of targeted advertising, which increases consumption across society, as well as in autonomous vehicles, which, depending on how they're developed, could increase potentially emissions. So I think there's really a big importance to thinking holistically about what the relationship is of AI to climate change, both the good and the bad, and working as a society to really align the use of AI with our climate change goals. Yeah, that statistic you, you mentioned about oil and gas being actually like AI playing such a big role in, in the oil and gas industry to increase productivity and profits is kind of <laughs> depressing, but maybe that underscores the, the necessity to, to actually frame AI in a positive way make it work for climate change in a positive way. Yeah, maybe we can use this to to segue a bit more concretely into your research and in, in these questions you have looked at in, in the context of power grids. Maybe just want to start with a short intro on, on what you did and what you've been thinking about. Absolutely. So my work focuses on how to better integrate renewable energy into power grids. Uh, and specifically, I'm actually being a little bit imprecise when I just say renewable energy. What I mean actually is variable renewable energy. So this is renewable energy where the output varies based on the weather. So this is like solar or wind. And the challenge that solar and wind bring is that uh, on a power grid, you have to maintain an exact balance between the amount of power that's supplied into the grid and the amount that's consumed at every single moment. And consumption is already uh, stochastic in the sense that we can't perfectly control or perfectly predict what demand will look like. But if now it's also the case that increasingly our supply is increasingly stochastic because of the introduction of renewables. And so this creates a need to manage power grids in a much more dynamic, real-time and data-driven manner that traditional methods are just not able to provide. And so what my work does is say, and we actually use machine learning to provide this real-time, you know, dynamic forecasting, optimization, and control in a way that enables us to incorporate larger proportions of renewable energy. The challenge here, though, is when you start to bring something like machine learning into power grids, machine learning is notoriously bad at satisfying physics or hard constraints uh, that exist on engineering systems like power grids. And not satisfying these constraints means that you can potentially induce like multi-day blackouts, which is huge economic losses, loss of lives. You really don't want to do this. So my work really looks at how do you create these machine learning methods that enable you to dynamically optimize your power grid, 
but in a way that fundamentally respects the physics and hard constraints associated with the underlying system. Yeah, you, you mentioned some of the hard constraints with respect to power grids are obviously that some forecasts are more dangerous or like incorrect forecasts are more dangerous than others. Absolutely. And other things like when you put power into the power grid, it flows along the lines according to physical laws. Uh, there's some restrictions on how much you can change the output of a power generator from one moment to the next. There are various kinds of stability constraints that you need to satisfy to make sure the power grid stays near some electrical equilibrium. So a lot of these different kinds of constraints that come up on the grid. Yeah, that's in itself uh, like a big field in machine learning in its own right. This question of how to um, combine basically the high level inductive biases we have also as human beings when it comes to how to create intelligent machines, how to make computers learn about the world because we have in some sense, a very useful representation because we know how gravity works and we know things that are common sense that seem obvious to us, but machine learning algorithms might be powerful, but they are very bad at acquiring common sense because if you don't put it in explicitly, it's 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 not in there. Absolutely. And yeah, exactly. In the machine learning um, and in the sciences, there's as, as a result been this uh, explosion in, in work in physics and form of machine learning, which says, as you're saying, how do we actually embed physical knowledge into our models in order to improve the performance of these models? Um, I would say that my work sort of sits not directly in the physics and form of machine learning space, but sort of slightly intersecting it and alongside it. Um, and I would use the terminology almost engineering constrained machine learning to describe it. So physics informed, as you said, uses these inductive biases to improve performance. But a lot of the time, these are actually introduced as, you know, soft constraints or soft priors that are meant to guide the learning of a, of a model. Whereas in a lot of engineering settings, it's not about a soft constraint. It really is a hard constraint and a performance requirement that the system needs to satisfy. So some of my work goes a step beyond just informing the model to really figuring out how can we enforce certain kinds of behavior in a way that's still compatible with the learning process of a machine learning model. So where do you think the, the biggest challenge is in kind of translating that um, constraint into like a meaningful mathematical formal structure or kind of finding the translation task of the intersection of the machine learning model to the mathematical constraints? Yeah, so I think the translation task itself, so in, there, there are some places and some areas where the constraints are, to a degree, very well known. So, for example, in power grids, as I mentioned, we know some of these constraints about how power flows along lines or how uh, engineering uh how various equipment is constrained in terms of how it can change how much power it's producing. So in a lot of these cases, we're actually able to write down optimization problems or sets of equations. And what my work does is say, can we leverage this? Uh, can, can we actually write these down in a way that is compatible with making them into a neural network layer? by having a module within your neural network that basically solves your physical equations during the, the forward pass. And then we provide a way to differentiate through this neural network layer in order to enable backpropagation. So basically, how do you create these, package these equations into a format that's compatible with how a neural network actually works? And that translation exercise requires both knowledge of the domain in which you're working 
and knowledge of what you can actually do to embed those those constraints into a neural network. And so that translation exercise is definitely one of the challenges. Yeah, and I think it has been historically a big challenge in the machine learning field, how how you get domain knowledge to, to kind of not over constrain your, your machine learning algorithm. I think there's this famous story from from IBM when they started building these machine like AI based uh, language models that the CEO said like every time I'm firing a linguist my performance goes up because he was <laughs> kind of referring to that question of because if if humans think they know how something worked and they try to hard code that it can kind of interfere with the learning to an extent that it doesn't learn anymore. But I think there has been a lot of progress in making that work. And now with these implicit layers, having, I think, like kind of a lot of influence in, in recent years. I think Neural ODEs, for example, came out three years ago. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the more technical questions of how they work and why they work. Maybe before diving into that, I think one other discussion that's really come in parallel is is the way that we're measuring performance by default in machine learning always the correct way to measure it. So performance is almost synonymous, is synonymous with um, kind of accuracy averaged over the entire data set with each data point considered equally. But then this creates a lot of challenges in certain areas. For example, in a power grid, you could have a law, a very accurate model, but if it breaks your grid, even in one instance, that's not good performance, but it's not a kind of performance that machine learning you know, folks have in, have in their minds. And similarly, in the language modeling community, right, we've seen a lot of inequities and a lot of you know, biases kind of very much come to the fore in a lot of these models because there wasn't adequate engagement of not just linguists, but various kinds of domain experts that that really could understand and, and shape those kinds of effects. So I think that for sure, like, you know, it's important to make sure that we're enabling our machine learning frameworks to and to to really analyze and 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 leverage patterns in the underlying data without over constraining them but we should also make sure we actually understand what notions of performance we actually want to aim for rather than just the defaults and make sure that there's the correct set of domain experts in the room to be able to frame those as well yeah for sure especially i guess in the medical domain or like in in the power in power grids the mistakes can get so costly that it's also you're starting to get into these legal questions of who's actually responsible if the algorithm does something bad or stupid with self-driving cars we have the same issues that then yeah the human agency or at least human common sense becomes an extremely important part of the equation yeah should we go into implicit layers and how they work and whether that's a kind of a cool way of getting these constraints into your systems absolutely so Basically, one way to think about implicit layers is most, it, you might like re recall from whatever your, your high school mathematics, this, this difference between implicit functions and explicit functions. So explicit functions are these functions where you can kind of plug your inputs in on one side of the equation and then kind of spits out your output on the other side. So basically you can solve for the variable that you're actually trying to, to, um, to get the value of in a uh, completely algebraic manner. Um, 
Implicit functions are where ones where you can't necessarily do this, where you have to use, for example, some kind of iterative method like Newton-Raphson in order to um, converge to the value of your output variable as respect of your inputs. And so a lot of layers in deep learning that are kind of the default, very popular layers are explicit layers where you have something like a sigmoid or ReLU where you can just plug your input on one side and the output kind of spits back out. But a lot of the physical equations that we care about are actually implicit layers. They might be uh, ordinary differential equations or there might be optimization problems. And so the question is, okay, first of all, how do you get the outputs from the inputs? Well, we do have methods from numerical optimization to do this. But then now, how do you get the gradients of the outputs with respect to the inputs, which is necessary for those functions to play well with backpropagation and gradient descent workflows in deep learning? So what a lot of the work in this area does is say, well, if I have a solution to my implicit equation, so if I have a solution to my ordinary differential equation or my optimization problem, then I can use something called the implicit function theorem, which says that basically approximately like at this equilibrium, you can take derivatives of your output variables with respect to your input variables, kind of in the way that you would expect that you could kind of, um, and, and not sort of think about second order dependencies. So this basically enables us to get the gradients that we need at this equilibrium if we've solved the optimization problem or ODE that we're actually thinking about. Um, and then that enables us to actually embed this uh, implicit function into a neural network. Now, for those who are really familiar with backpropagation, you'll say, well, Priya, what you actually want is not the gradient of the output of your neural network layer with respect to its input. You want the gradient of your loss function with respect to the inputs. Um, and so a lot of the, the literature in this area also thinks about how do you actually directly solve for this gradient of the loss function with respect to the inputs in a way that actually doesn't create additional computational costs beyond um, having solved the uh, implicit function in the first place during the forward pass. Yeah, and with neural ODEs, that was like a huge thing because with neural ODEs, the idea is that your a neural network represents your ODE system and you integrate out the solution of the system by integrating out the function that is represented by your network. But if you sample long trajectories and then you get like an input that determines your loss as you need to integrate it backwards and then you need to store the entire trajectory in order to compute the gradients but via this adjoint method which was what the Duvenal group uh, came up with and Ricky Chen to to make that much more efficient basically meant you can compute this um, gradient of the loss function with respect to the ODE system but you don't need to store the entire trajectory but that's became, I think, the best NeurIPS paper 2019 and has been very influential since. Are there any applications of, of neural ODEs or like any specific applications in this field that you're also using in the power grid context or in your work? Yeah, so my work specifically hasn't drawn on the, the neural ODEs literature. There's a lot of really interesting work, for example, in the building optimization space um, and in the climate science space that is trying to basically figure out parameters of your building dynamics of your climate model in order to, in the case of buildings, then actually optimize your building uh, in order to, re to, to reduce its energy use. So that's been some really cool lines of work. My work has really um, uh, kind of followed the lines that started with um, 
Brandon Amos's paper called OptNet that came out in 2017. And OpNet basically provided a way to differentiate through quadratic optimization problems and, and embed those into, into neural networks. And so since then, kind of there have almost been these, these two dominant strains of literature in the implicit layers literature, one of which is kind of on this ODE's PDE side, and the other of which is on the optimization problem side. And for my area, power grids, the optimization problem side is, is particularly interesting because a lot of problems that we think about in power grids are optimization problems. This question of how do you schedule power in a way that satisfies constraints and, and satisfies demand is a problem called optimal power flow that power system operators and that community studies really thoroughly. And there are also lots of control problems on power grids relating to controlling distributed devices in a way that preserves a property called or, or satisfies a property called asymptotic stability, um, where you have the control theorists synthesizing controllers that satisfy this property. And the way they do this is by writing down optimization problems and actually solving them. So there's actually a really rich history of these different kinds of optimization problems that we can then draw upon to enhance our own methods. So for example, some of my work looks at how do you create reinforcement learning based controllers for inverters on the power grid? in a way that improves performance by learning from data, but also satisfies this asymptotic stability constraint from the control theory literature. And so what my work does is it actually writes down and solves the optimization problems that are solved in the control theory literature and figures out a way to embed their results into the way that we construct our deep, uh, our deep reinforcement learning workflow. And how much is this already used? Now, are there like technological applications? Are there startups, companies that already use it? Or is it still more the foundational science questions that are being addressed? So some of this work uh, has is, is definitely still on the foundational research side. And I would say specifically a lot of the work in that's using implicit layers for optimization and control. But... There are definitely a lot of forecasting applications where this work is actually used in practice. So, for example, um, several um, uh, kind of like inventory optimization, like companies that would do inventory optimization and a couple of companies that do um, energy forecasting, they're starting to employ implicit layers within their forecasting workflows in order to ensure that their forecasting models are cognizant of various kinds of domain constraints and decision-making processes that are downstream of those forecasts. This also reminded me of, of some of the conversations also with the Clean Air Task Force, because both also talked about this yeah, question of energy demand, which is with, with renewables will take on a completely different shape because you have this strong seasonality in the especially in the European and American climate where you have a lot of fluctuation in how many sun hours you have and how much wind you have. But there's also like the larger climate justice question that I heard you mention in a lot of your talks, which is also a topic you, you talk about a lot and which reminded me, like one of the points Armand Cohen, for example, from the Cleaner Task Force made frequently is that, yeah, this there will be an increasing energy demand by the just uh, the increasing energy demand in the developing world, which will just go up by a lot. So also smartly designing and implementing power grids is a huge opportunity because in many of, of these countries, you basically have the luxury of, of doing it from scratch and not 
like to build it on on top of a yeah already pre-existing structure. Absolutely, and I, I'd say that there's definitely a lot of um, potential to, as you're saying, leapfrog and and kind of bring in uh, learnings and new technologies that have been matured elsewhere when when building up new systems in certain places from scratch. At the same time, there's definitely um, been sometimes some of a a bit of a temptation in, for example, the philanthropic sector to say, oh. Okay, great. Africa needs energy. We're only going to fund solar panels and solar roofs and solar homes. And this really can inhibit the ability of these economies to grow if we're too restrictive in terms of the kinds of ways that financing is actually put forth. And so um, definitely very important to both or think very strongly about how do we achieve these climate goals, but really do this realistically in a way that works well with additional sustainable development goals and economic development goals that we have. And uh, there's a there's a TED countdown talk that I really like on this topic um, from Dr. Rose Mutiso at the Energy for Growth Hub. It's called um, the energy Africa needs to develop and fight climate change. And I would definitely recommend it. It's, it's quite short and very powerful. I would definitely recommend a watch for, for anybody who's interested in this topic. Yeah, tackling climate change is also like a high dimensional optimization problem. And it's hard to, to do everything right. And I think in this yeah kind of post-colonial world, there's still the tendency of, of the Western powers to kind of stay in the same patterns of thought that if you are interested in like mitigating climate change, you kind of imprint your vision of that onto developing countries, like especially Africa, Latin America, for example. So yeah, it's kind of easier to ignore the kind of implications of what you are doing because you say now we need to act some th- in in some sense. And climate change is such a big issue that we can basically do whatever we want. Yeah, we haven't talked about the climate change AI organization in too much detail, given that's your Count Mainchup and you're serving as executive director. There's, I guess, also a lot of things to talk about. So yeah, what what are you doing? Focusing on what are interesting initiatives? Absolutely. So yeah, Climate Change AI. It's we're a global nonprofit initiative that tries to catalyze impactful work at this intersection of climate change and machine learning, and we do this in several ways. So one of these is by providing education. There's definitely a lot of possibility for, you know, the ways in which AI can be used to address climate action, but that, you know, not there, there's definitely a lack of people who really can translate between AI machine learning and relevant areas. And there's also a big need for discourse in terms of how to do work in these areas responsibly. So we at Climate Change AI, we provide various kinds of education. For example, we recently ran our first summer school Uh, which brought together 70 um, leaders from machine learning and climate change related backgrounds for specialized education on this topic and to also work on collaborative projects. So education is a big pillar of what we do. We also provide uh, various kinds of funding and other, you know, quote unquote, infrastructure to try to fill gaps in this space. So for example, we recently launched uh, um, the second cycle of our Climate Change AI Innovation Grants Program. So over two years, we'll have given out $3 million um, to projects uh, bringing together academics and partners with whom this work can potentially be deployed. So governments, startups, industries, and so forth. We also have put out a wish list of data sets, so data sets that could potentially facilitate various work in this area. 
Um, but that, and that if created could, could, yeah, could be helpful in facilitating work in this area. And so um, that information is out there for those who are interested in the creation of data sets. And in fact, our innovation grants program also funds the creation of data sets to catalyze this kind of work. We also do a fair amount of community building, really trying to bring together people from machine learning and climate change backgrounds and people from across academia, industry, policy, and so forth. So for example, we run a series of workshops at the major machine learning conferences, which have drawn, you know, whatever, several hundreds of research submissions and thousands of participants to really exchange knowledge, network, um, and then learn about this area. In addition to, we've run several events at the UN Climate Change Conference. And so additionally, this last pillar, we really do try to work with policymakers, work with the decision makers, and really shape their understanding in the public discourse on these topics of AI and climate change in the sense that both of these topics are, are topics that have a lot of hype and um, you know excitement around them, but making sure that they are appropriately communicated about when talked about together, both thinking about how can AI be used to address climate change and thinking about the responsibility considerations in that, what are the ways in which AI can hurt climate change and how do we align all of these things? Um, we, we play a, a pretty big role in, in trying to advance that discourse as well. So for those who are listening, I definitely would encourage you to, to check out some of our activities, our workshops and events. We run mentorship programs, happy hours on online community platform webinars. So there are lots of ways to sort of get started and getting engaged and really start to meet people around the community and, and leverage uh, these resources. Yeah, it sounds, sounds awesome. Who is primarily funding you or like providing these grants? Is it government-based or donation-based? Yeah, so the, the grants program has been funded so far by Schmidt Futures, Quadrature Climate Foundation, and DeepMind. And as I mentioned, is uh, going to provide $3 million of support over two years. Um, at the same time, uh, so we're very grateful for those funders. Um, and at the same time, we definitely have seen that the demand for our innovation grants program, for example, is is much larger than actually what our finances are able to support. So we received... Um, you know, 180 applications last year, of which we were able to fund 13, despite more than three times of those being, you know, uh, so yeah, 7% acceptance rate, despite more than three times that being rated as excellent by our expert reviewers. So we're definitely looking to further scale the innovation grants program, um, in addition to many of other climate change AI's program, and are certainly looking for, for additional funders and partners to work with us on. And you... Like also with respect to to the network growing, like kind of see see a good trend of many more people flocking into that field. Also, given that it's it's kind of new, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. The community has grown really significantly over the last few years, but there's definitely even more room to do so. So, um, our community started anchored in the kind of AI machine learning research side of things. And so a lot of the initial work has been about how do you develop new methods and actually advance the cutting edge in order to actually cope with climate change related areas. But given that a lot of this discourse and a lot of these methods and areas have matured, there's also now really um, potentially a lot of momentum for actually deploying these things, some of which are very much ready for deployment in industry. And so I think there's a lot more capability to really engage uh, not just researchers, but also practitioners, data scientists, for example, who are working in industry to to really go forth and, and enact this kind of change across the wide set of sectors we'll need to transform to address climate change. I guess it's 
the big issue is too that basically there's such a huge range of, of different applications and just to get the conversation going can often just help people realize that there's something to be done. I think we had that conversation about yeah, carbon storage and capture on the podcast as well. And it's also such an interesting problem because the te technology is out there since 40 years, but many people just don't know that it exists. <laughs> so just, yeah, just doing the thing you already know works is, is already makes a huge difference. Is there also a significant contribution from like private donors or do you have that option in, in place? I think for the Clean Air Task Force, that endorsement by the effective altruism community made a huge difference. They tripled in size in, in the span of two or three years, just based on private donations. Because I think there's a lot of demand from private people as well to mitigate climate and to, to get active in that space. And they are also willing to give. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're very, very like happy to work with, um, you know, Uh, large philanthropic donors and individuals who are excited about this space. So definitely, if you're somebody in that category and listening, feel free to reach out. Um, and uh, we, you know, uh, anticipate also adding a donate button to our to our website uh, sometime in the near future, sort of pending some of the back end logistics that that actually go with that. Yeah, we are closing in. I need. I know you need to go soon. Maybe as a as a final question, do you have any like, favorite book or like paper that you've read in recent months, years? that has shaped your thinking? Um, so one that uh, on the machine learning side that I read over the last few months is called The Values Encoded in Machine Learning Research by Abebe Berhane et al. And what this paper really does is it, is it, it does a systematic analysis of some of the most cited papers at, at, at the top machine learning venues in order to analyze what is it that the machine learning ac community actually values as evidenced by the way that they discuss and disseminate their results in these top-sided papers. Um, and I think that particular analysis has had a lot of really good insights about values that we really implicitly hold within the machine learning community with respect to performance, interpretability, equity, many other axes. But then also more broadly, what the implications are of those implicitly held assumptions on society and on who machine learning solutions actually serve. So I definitely thought that was a, a really insightful read that that I really appreciated. Is there a short answer or was there anything like really surprising in there that you could sum up in a sentence? Um, so I'll give a, I think it's, there, there's a lot in there and I think it's really hard to summarize. But here, one example is um, when we talk about efficiency in machine learning contexts, um, This is often talked about because making something more efficient allows us to scale it more. It is much more seldom talked about in the context that making something more efficient allows it to be accessible to or shaped by a broader set of people with access to less compute. And as a result, the ways in which we then target efficiency or discuss efficiency, they are going to look a little bit different depending on whether the ultimate goal is scale or the ultimate goal is accessibility. So that's just one example, I think, of a of a um, an insight from the paper that that I thought was really um, well put. And uh, but again, I think that the paper has many many such insights, and I would really encourage people to give it a read. Yeah, I mean, it sounds super interesting. I would definitely put it on my read list. I think this is the end of our conversation. So thanks a lot for taking the time to to join us and 
for, for all the work you do. I think it's extremely important and, and very fascinating. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me on the, on the podcast and uh, yeah, have a good rest of the day. Thank you.